This episode is part of a lecture series on Simone de Beauvoir, brought to you by me, Lisbeth Schoonheim, and Ashika Singh. We are asking the question, how are her writings and her activism relevant to us today? Simone de Beauvoir may be known for her landmark publication of The Second Sex and for her contributions to the French existentialist movement. But, as this series will show, there is so much more to be discovered in what she said with regards to phenomenology and various forms of oppression and resistance, and in what she did as a Marxist, a feminist, and as a supporter of anti-colonialist struggles in Algeria and beyond. In this lecture series, we will have a number of scholars presenting on Simone de Beauvoir's ideas and her life. We want to understand how her oeuvre might provide tools in making sense of 21st century issues and events. These presentations were part of the Simone de Beauvoir conference hosted by KU Leuven's Institute of Philosophy, which took place from the 2nd to 4th of June 2021. More information on the conference can be found in the description of this lecture series. These presentations were recorded during an online conference, and so you might find some issues with the sound quality. We hope that you enjoy this episode, and do stay tuned for others over the course of the next weeks. In this concluding episode of our lecture series, we welcome Crescent Mally Mason, who is an assistant professor of philosophy at Haverford College and the director of the International Simone de Beauvoir Society. She will be introduced today by Julia Janssen, professor of philosophy at KU Leuven, who will also moderate the Q&A after the lecture. Crescent Millie Mason's lecture will be followed by a response by Dan van Kouwbergen, who is a master's researcher at the University of Ghent. It is my great pleasure. I'm honestly excited to uh, present to you Crescent Mali Mason, who's uh, agreed to be our final keynote speaker uh, at this conference. Crescent uh, Mali Mason is an assistant professor of philosophy at Haverford College in Pennsylvania in the US, and currently serves as the president of the International Simone de Beauvoir Society. She earned a PhD in philosophy with a certificate in women's studies from Temple University in 2014, where she wrote her thesis, An Ethical Disposition Toward the Erotic, the Early Autobiographical Writings of Simone de Beauvoir and Black Feminist Philosophy, which links Beauvoir's 1920s 19 to 1940s autobiographical engagements with the erotic in her journals and memoirs to developments in her thinking on ethics and draws parallels from these two key themes in the black feminist writings of, for example, Audre Lorde, Bell Hooks and Patricia Hill Collins on the erotic. From 2014 to 2018, uh, Crescent taught in the Women's and Gender Studies Department at Barra College where she solidified a commitment to the value of interdisciplinarity and intersectional theorizing through teaching and researching in gender and sexuality studies and African-American studies, in addition to existentialism and phenomenology, feminist philosophy, critical race philosophy, and ethics and social political philosophy. 
Her most recent writings include hashtag black girl magic as resistant imaginary and intersectional ambiguity and the phenomenology of hashtag black girl joy. And she's currently working on a book manuscript uh, titled Intersectional Ambiguity, Simone de Beauvoir, Women of Color Feminisms and the Difference Difference Makes. So uh, from this very brief introduction, I can only um, mention a few, a few aspects. You see it's a very multifaceted uh, toolkit that Crescent is bringing to the floor now. So um, I'm, I'm very happy to give her the screen, as it were. Her talk, uh, her talk will be followed by a short response by Dan van Kauenberger, who's uh, in a, a student in the philosophy department uh, in Ghent currently. So uh, without further ado um, to the keynote lecture entitled Uses of Ambiguity, a Black Feminist Phenomenologist Reflects on 2020 and Ambiguous Futures. And thank you so much, Julia, for that lovely um, introduction. And thank you, everyone, for being here and for inviting me to the conference. I'm really so excited. I was reminded on, on the first day how much, you know, I really love Beauvoir scholars. <laughs> I fell in love with the community of, of Beauvoir scholars through the International Simone Beauvoir Society that, you know, are, are not only smart and brilliant, but also just such a delight to be around and to think with. Um, and so I'm, I'm always just reminded of that, even from so far away, I'm very sort of honored to be in community with you all and, and consider you people I would love to have a coffee with and, and, and consider you to sort of like think with. So I, I want to thank the organizers and everyone at Leuven. Um, I've not been, you know, everyone's favorite uh, sort of conference participant, but people have been so patient. Thank you, especially Lisbeth and also um, Dan for his response that I'm very much looking forward to. I thought that everything in the conference has been just so thoughtfully put together um, and run so smoothly. And as much as I wish that we could be together in real life, um, I'm happy that we are able to be together in this capacity. Um, I also want to call to mind the anniversary of the death of George Floyd, um, who was murdered by the Minneapolis police on May 25th, 2020. And I also want to call to name, uh, I want to call the name of Breonna Taylor, who had been murdered by the Louisville, Kentucky police prior to that on March 13th in 2020. I will not say all of their names here, but I carry them and other sort of black and brown victims of state violence in the room with me. Um, I wanna sort of lay that kind of as the foundation for the talk here. Um, sort of throughout the presentation, I'm gonna be asking you to think about ambiguities that you might've experienced or lived through during the year 2020. And um, so I'll, I'll go back to what I'm doing with this, but at the end of the presentation, I'm hoping that we can just sort of have a sort of collective kind of mapping um, of ambiguities um, here. Okay, so this is the beginning of my sabbatical. And as such, people are asking me what I plan to do with it. And the obvious thing is to say is that I will be writing a book. I'll be writing a book about a concept called intersectional ambiguity that I think is really important, but I won't be focusing on the whole of that concept today. I'll be focusing on the half that is ambiguity. I want to focus today on ambiguity as a way to close out this conference and to think about new engagements with Simone de Beauvoir's work and the legacies of feminist thinkers like Beauvoir, who are complex, complicated, brilliant, and also ambiguous. 
I want to propose that 2020 was my year of ambiguity. I want to take a moment to think about the ambiguities that emerged for me and how I kept seeing ambiguity everywhere. I want to explode the concept of ambiguity here, to overuse it, to think about it phenomenologically, to do phenomenology to it. And I wanna talk about it not only as a philosophical concept that I've inherited from a French existentialist white woman who I will never meet, but also as a concept that helped me heal and have discernment and live through a year full of ambiguities. I want to talk about how I journeyed through having done so myself and how having done so has changed my relationship to Beauvoir, how in my life and in my thinking, I had turned away from her, feeling worn down in certain senses by all the critique of her, of the messiness of her life, how much there seemed to apologize for, but how in this past year, I realized that it was she herself who allowed me to position myself ambiguously toward her as a figure and also toward the other feminist thinkers that I've been journeying with and using as inspiration. I want to talk about ways that 2020 forced us all to confront how we are imbued with this ambiguity. I want to think about what being a black feminist philosopher brings to bear on my relationship to the concept of ambiguity. I want to describe how it offered me dimensions of ambiguity that I didn't before consider or know, how this concept had taken a hold of me that had taken a hold of me as a young philosopher once again guided me through 2020. In many important ways, 2020 made me dig in further to ambiguity. I felt a two-ness, a blurredness. I began to overuse the phrase, but in so doing to feel in some way as if I were expanding the term. I want to consider why I returned to ambiguity, given the alternatives, assemblages, intermeshedness, Maria Lugones' notion of plurality, I hope here to map with you my lived experiences of ambiguity during the year 2020. In so doing, I hope again to pay homage to Beauvoir and to the ways her thinking continues to impact and inspire contemporary feminist thinkers from around the world. First, I again begin by calling attention to my titling of this keynote, The Uses of Ambiguity, in order that it calls to mind the lineages that it hopes to honor, both to Beauvoir, but also to Audre Lorde, whose commitment to the concept of use is evidenced in the titles of her essays, Uses of the Erotic, The Erotic is Power, and Uses of Anger. Following queer feminist phenomenologist, Sarah Ahmed, I want to begin with the idea that, quote, the word use is a busy word. To start with use is to start small and to start simply. Use is a relation as well as an activity that often points beyond something, even when use is about something. To use something points to what something is for. Here, I will be thinking about the uses of ambiguity, how we can understand it as a critical phenomenological concept and how a black feminist commitment to praxis makes me concerned, not just with understanding the term conceptually, but also with its usefulness. I will return to the concept of use later. What does it mean to say that I situate myself as a black feminist phenomenologist? I'm excited about the work that Jennifer McWinney presented about thinking about consciousness as having a sort of grasping relationship with itself and how this opens up space for us to think closely about how the structures of consciousness are affected by situations of difference. Like many others here, I am sympathetic to and have situated my work for a long time within existentialism and phenomenology and have recently been very encouraged by the work being done in critical phenomenology. As some have already described it, I take critical phenomenology to be a vein of phenomenology that attempts to resolve some of the issues with historical phenomenological traditions, 
particularly with regard to the relation that phenomenology might have might have and does and always already had with social justice and power relations embedded within the social. Gail Weiss, Anne Murphy, and Gail Solomon write in the introduction to 50 Concepts for a Critical Phenomenology that a critical phenomenology is one, quote, that mobilizes phenomenological description in the service of a reflexive inquiry into how power relations structure experience, as well as our ability to analyze that experience. A critical phenomenology draws attention to the multiple ways in which power moves through our bodies and our lives. It is also an ameliorative phenomenology that seeks not only to describe, but also to repair the world, encouraging generativity, respect, and compassion for the diversity of our lived experiences. Such a project can never be an individual endeavor, moreover, but requires coalitional labor and solidarity across difference." Unquote. So I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to thinking about the last panel discussion um, and also sort of thinking also back to Jen, um, Jennifer's keynote, um, thinking about how this sort of calls for a kind of ontological specificity. So this ontological specificity that phenomenology offers us through thinking about lived experience. Um, and as such, and in the tradition of other Black feminist thinkers who are at the heart of my teaching, research, and writing, I begin and end with who I am. I am Crescent Molly Mason, a 38-year-old bisexual Black feminist assistant philosophy professor at what is known as a selective private liberal arts college. I live in West Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in the United States, and my people are from Montgomery, Alabama, and Montego Bay, Jamaica. I am a third-generation college graduate whose mother is also a professor. I was initially trained in philosophy at Spelman College, a private, all-Black, all-women's liberal art college. I name these positions, what I take to be salient dimensions of my situation in order to make these positions explicit in an attempt to resist any claim to universality. Instead, I want to make a rather extreme claim to specificity and difference at the outset. Hence, my positionality is not masked in my writing or in my philosophizing. I'm interested in the kinds of phenomenological writing and thinking that does the same, as I hope it will provide more possibilities for theorizing difference. Like Lugones, quote, if I am right, it is not just those who theorize about difference who need to worry about it when theorizing. Difference makes the kind of difference that makes inappropriate the theoretical division of labor between those of us who work on difference and those of us who don't, unquote. Already I'm wading into ambiguous waters, but at the very least I wanna make it clear that being a black feminist phenomenologist orients me to having an almost doubled interest in the liberatory and ameliorative, sorry, dimensions of phenomenology. A phenomenology that is not invested in liberation meets neither the criteria of black feminists nor the criteria of critical to me. My black feminist political commitments will come up throughout this talk, but at the very least, being a black feminist commits me to sexuality, sorry, commits me to an investment in the liberation of all oppressed people along axes of race, gender, sexuality, class, ability, age, which I have to shout out because Sonia, I mean, makes it so important for us to think about this, um, and other social identities. Being a Black feminist locates my locus of concern and liberation projects with that of Black people across the diaspora who have been historically enslaved, colonized, and exploited, and made the targets of violence and death for centuries. I have a particular concern with the lived experiences of black women and what they come to know and teach us 
as a result of those experiences. My initial interest in ambiguity came from reading the ethics of ambiguity in graduate school at Temple University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in 2007. Although upon reflection, I've been drawn to existentialism as evidenced by an undergraduate thesis that I wrote about paradoxes of love and Kierkegaard, but perhaps that's a story for another time. And I also wanna shout out Dana here who, who's doing work on this and we heard from um, this weekend or this week. I fell in love with ambiguity because when I read the ethics of ambiguity, I felt intellectually seen, born witness to, again in a home that I had chosen, that had become for all intents and purposes, quite cold and unwelcoming. This home was the discipline of philosophy, and I was coming to find it quite different than what I had expected. I initially studied philosophy at Spelman, a historically black, all women's private liberal arts college. I fell in love with philosophy and decided to use it to study black people and love in a PhD program under the guidance of Lewis Gordon. In graduate school, I learned that philosophy was for white men, and I was shocked. I asked myself daily, what the fuck am I doing here? I ended up Tiang Lewis's class on existentialism, and I had to read the Ethics of Ambiguity. In the text, I found a totally different woman than the one I had been taught to be impressed by from the second sex, which at the time made me want to sort of barf and, and vomit. I just did, was not very impressed with it. Something in ambiguity, though, spoke to me. I'm still in the process of putting my finger on exactly what it was, but I can say that I was attracted not only to the concept, but also to the person and the figure attached to it. This was the beginning of a Beauvoir deep drive, deep dive. I read everything that I could, joined the tribe of existentialism, and was most fascinated by the way Beauvoir lived and the way that she loved. I saw in her someone who had put her finger on the pulse of something interesting and important about existence. I was scandalized by her life, especially her love life, and how being in love with Zaza and Jacques and Sartre and Olga and Bianca and Nelson changed her each time. How her and other cycles of translation and conversion were familiar and recognizable to me. And it seemed to me that there was something really important about the power of love or the way that the erotic seems to reorient one again and again to oneself and especially to oneself as a feminist or in relation to feminism and ubiquitous fuck upness that is patriarchy. We might even think here, you know, I'm thinking here of like Jen's sort of notion of se faire and like the sort of the idea of reoccurrence would be sort of another way that I can view this coming off of this conference. But back then, getting juicy with Beauvoir's life and wanting to trace how it related to her ethics gave me the motivation to stay in graduate school, to study French for a summer at the Sorbonne, and finally to finish my dissertation. I completed my dissertation in 2014 about the erotic instead of ambiguity and focused on the connections among autobiography and feminism and the erotic. I wanted to say that there was some way that black feminist thinkers like Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks and Patricia Hill Collins were like Beauvoir also using autobiography as a form of philosophizing that there was something special about the category of the erotic in their doing so. Although I felt horribly like my project was split in two. I felt like on the one hand, I had given an analysis of Beauvoir and how the erotic figured into her ethical philosophy. And then on the other hand, I had given an account of these black feminist writers and how the erotic figured into their ethical systems as evidenced by their autobiographical writings. But I couldn't in the end quite articulate what the connection was. I felt embarrassed by the project as most of us do about our theses. 
I felt so embarrassed, in fact, that I haven't even looked at it since I wrote it nearly a decade ago. But I will say, um, I hope you're pronouncing your name correctly, but Helly or Hailey McConnell, your, your talk sort of gave me kind of a fresh life and, and all of you sort of thinking about kind of returning it. But nonetheless, even though I thought that project was trash, I intuited that there, that there was some kind of connection. But at the time, I didn't think or have the presence of mind to realize that the connection could be me or that I was and am at least one connection between you know, these sort of lines of thought. Here I will say one thing that I did retain from my thesis work is that I'm convinced that there is philosophical merit to what I've come to describe following bell hooks as auto-theoretical writing. And there is something feminist about this method of philosophizing. I continue to be convinced of this. So I've continued to use it in my work. This is related to black feminist commitments I mentioned earlier, and it's also connected to how I understand and orient myself within the subfield of critical phenomenology. I went to my first international Simone de Beauvoir Society conference in 2016. And um, I have a note to myself here, plug the society. So this is my plug for the International Simone de Beauvoir Society, which everyone here should join. And like I said, you, you cannot find a, a community of people that you would rather be around than this community of people. So I see so many of these faces that I met at this initial conference. I just felt just so warm and so welcoming. And I felt so kind of enlivened by being a part of that community. Um, I met people that I idolized, like Peg Simons and Sonia Cruz. Through this, I was invited to contribute to a feminist phenomenology volume. At the time, I was teaching women's studies at Berea College, which is in rural Kentucky, and becoming very steeped in Black feminist thought. I was also learning from Bell Hooks, who lives and writes there. While I was having to teach and think and talk about intersectionality at work, I wanted to start writing about what was keeping me connected to communities of Black women around the globe while I was living in a place where Black people were less than 0.5% of the population. I stayed sane through seeing them do things on Instagram that I thought were interesting and important. Somehow, I landed on the concept of intersectional ambiguity, which you can read about in Rethinking Feminist Phenomenology, which I'm going to plug. Um, I know that Sarah is here. I'm not sure if Christina is here, but um, please go and get the volume. It's, it's full of um, feminist phenomenology. Speaking of new, sort of new places, new directions. In other places, I've talked about how the concept of ambiguity as presented through the, con through the concept of intersectionality Sorry, in other places I have talked about how the concept of ambiguity as presented through Beauvoir's existential phenomenological lens has offered me a theoretical tool through which to better place the concept of intersectionality into the discipline of philosophy. Long tired of trying to explain concepts of simultaneity and tension to classmates and others who seem to be willfully ignorant about what it means to live two or more oppressed identities at the same time. I eventually found in ambiguity a nestling concept, something I could sneak in. I kept writing about it and thinking about it. In 2019, I was voted the president of the International Simone de Beauvoir Society. And again, I'm gonna plug, this is my plug for the society, but I must say that I was more than intimidated by it. I felt unprepared and underqualified, and I'm sure I owe at least half of you an email even right now. In addition, I moved back to the city of Philadelphia and back to teaching in a philosophy department. Being situated back in philosophy, I was again reminded that to the larger world, philosophy is still for white dudes. And I was further reminded of the need to do for my black feminist heroes what had been done for Beauvoir, 
and attention being paid, a renewed view and lens through which to meet these thinkers through their philosophy as philosophers. And then I started to feel and take very seriously the critiques of Beauvoir developed by black feminist thinkers like Sophia Catherine Bell. On the internet, I read comments and section, read comment sections that provided me with a queer and me too lens through which to, be, to view Beauvoir's sordid love life that I had so cherished once. In the era of cancellation, I read people debate Beauvoir's self-interested choices during Nazi occupation. I started to feel confused about what it meant to helm a society dedicated to the legacy of this woman. The ambiguities that initially drew me to Beauvoir were also those that I had come to find embarrassing. Then 2020 happened. Allow me for a second to continue this narrative in order to demonstrate all of what happened during the year of 2020 through the lens of personal autobiography and auto-theoretical writing and the events that shaped me during that year. In January, 2020, I was in the midst of the dissolution of a nine-year partnership that ended amongst many reasons because I wanted children and my partner did not. Though broken up, we lived together until March. And during this time, I began putting feelers out for a potential sperm donor, one of whom seemed potentially interested. In March of 2020, during spring break, the threat of the COVID-19 virus had spread across the globe and my college officially announced that we would be conducting all classes online for the rest of the semester. And students, many of whom had left their lives on campus while they went on vacation, would not be allowed to return to campus. Philadelphia went into quarantine measures soon thereafter. All of a sudden, everyone was wearing masks and I was rushing to the grocery store to buy tins and tins of tuna that are still in my cupboards. My ex-partner moved out and as the world became more strange by the day, I found myself falling in love with a potential sperm donor, a black male childhood friend who decided to spend the summer with me and see if we might be compatible both as co-parents and as partners. On May 25th, 2020, word of George Floyd's murder began to spread from the activist circles in Minneapolis to activist groups across the country, including the Philadelphia chapter of Black Lives Matter, of which my sister has been a central organizer for the past four years. As May turned to June, global uprisings began in response to the complex nexus of conditions that are continued state violence against Black people, economic conditions brought on by the coronavirus and the psychological trauma of the uncertainty of the future. In Philadelphia, my sister was sprayed with pepper spray while protesting. Blocks from my home on 52nd Street, the Philadelphia police unleashed tear gas on my community, including residences and businesses. Homes and stores were looted and burned. The sounds of rubber bullets, helicopters, fireworks, and sirens droned on for more than 24 hours. The National Guard was called to protect the community. And as such, people in black communities in Philadelphia had to travel miles away to go to grocery and corner stores because all of ours were destroyed and boarded up. Meanwhile, in nearby suburban white enclaves, like the one where the, in the college, where the college where I teach is located, remained untouched and unoccupied. And I'm thinking here, you know, again about counterviolence as a way to maybe frame um, thinking about the uprising. So I want to thank and shout out Diana for that. Um, having decided he couldn't live in the United States under these conditions, and in fear of the potential response to the 2020 presidential election. My lover, with whom I had spent this entire summer preparing to build a family and debating the merits of living in this country, 
decided to move to Tanzania. And in September, I stayed behind to continue teaching online, prepare my dossier for promotion in my academic job and philosophy, and apply for fellowships to support my sabbatical. During the time, I lived alone for the first time in more than a decade and attempted to fulfill my social needs via the internet, all while longing for a child and the frayed connection between me and my now ex-lover. In late October, 2020, Walter Wallace Jr., a black man suffering from a mental health crisis, was murdered by the Philadelphia police a few, a few blocks away from my home. Again, protests erupted. And as a result, the black and indigenous students at my college, led by women, held a strike against the college. The strike, which lasted for two weeks, called the administration and faculty out for its mistreatment and silencing of students of color and first generation and low income students who are a vast minority on campus. Students provided a set of demands that would have to be met in order for them to return to classes and continue their work study jobs. The strike divided the campus along racial and political lines as students and faculty were asked to show solidarity with the strikers by not holding or attending classes or college events. The strike brought my campus to its knees. The deep divisions that had been percolating were now made more explicit. And I sat in hours and hours of meetings attempting to mediate between the students who trusted me as a black feminist ally on campus and the administration who struggled to meet the demands of the students and to understand their deep frustrations. During this time, the United States voted out a fascist, but his supporters remained fired up. Eventually, the strike ended and we struggled to pull the pieces back together in our classes while I struggled to pull my pieces back together in my home, feeling increasingly isolated and depressed, barely gathering the strength to make the drive to Alabama, to the South, to spend the close of the year with my mother and my sister in my childhood home. When the year 2020 ended, an estimated 78 million people globally had been infected with coronavirus and 1.7 million people had died because of it. I'll now turn to my mapping of ambiguity, which is basically just presenting some preliminary ideas about the concept of ambiguity. During the summer of 2020, I had an undergraduate research assistant who was tasked with providing me with a bibliography of the concept of ambiguity in the history of philosophy. Every time we would meet, she would become more and more frustrated by, my, by approaches to ambiguity in the history of philosophy. Much of our discussion centered around the following preliminary thoughts and ideas about the concept of ambiguity. So these before we get to Beauvoir's. Um, generally, the basic definition of ambiguity is something in which several, more than one, interpretations are possible. This something cannot be resolved according to some rule or process. As ambiguity is a kind of vagueness, the opposite of ambiguity seeks specific and distinct interpretations. In disciplines like philosophy, which traditionally seek clarity, ambiguity is a threat because the very purpose of the discipline or method is held to be to disambiguate. In the ethics of ambiguity, Beauvoir begins her discussion of the phenomenological dimensions of ambiguity with the concept of paradox. She offers various descriptors that account for human lived experience in ontology. So I've kind of listed them here, you know, life and death, reasoning, thinking, being. So when I'm asking you, these are sort of um, examples of these ambiguities from her text. And as you might consider, start to think about some, there's reasoning, thinking, being, irrational animal plant so it sort of allows us to comprehend, but not to escape the fact that we're beholden to nature. 
um, sovereign and unique, object for others, individual, collective, etc. Anyone who has picked up the text is familiar with these descriptors, which form the first couple of pages of ethics. Notably, for Beauvoir, ambiguity is not a synthesis, nor is it exactly a dialectic, but rather, as Crooks has described, for Beauvoir, ambiguous tensions are the very stuff of life itself. They cannot be eliminated. Here, Beauvoir turns her indictment upon philosophers. She writes, as long as there have been men and they have lived, they have all felt the tragic ambiguity of their condition. But as long as there have been philosophers and they have thought, most of them have tried to mask it. Beauvoir goes on to explain that a reason they must do this is because the task of philosophy appears to be to make things more clear and hence more comprehensible. The philosopher's fault then is reduction. The philosopher tries to mask ambiguity by either denying life or denying death. Beauvoir contends that the ethics and the ethical systems and orientations that people follow because supposedly philosophers have knowledge and understanding seek to eliminate ambiguity. This is their fault and we bear the consequences of these faults. I want to make note here that Beauvoir infamously goes on to deny the title philosopher as applied to herself. And when I read her indictment here and think about my own experience, I think, ah, yes, who would want to be called a philosopher under these conditions? Perhaps that is part of what continues to be wrong with philosophy and why many diverse practitioners continue to feel ill-suited within it. Either way, rather than do this, Beauvoir wants to begin by assuming ambiguity. In order to do this, we begin by assuming failure because it is by virtue of our capacity to fail that we have ethics at all. Just as Beauvoir chastised moral philosophers for their failure to encompass ambiguity, I wanted to consider ambiguity through a non-philosophical lens uh, or a non-philosophical orientation. And I wanted to actually go like right to the heart of imperialist white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. Like what, is, why, why, what do you all think about ambiguity? In order to do so, I found an actuary, a black actuary that I knew who works in Wall Street. <laughs> so I asked him about ambiguity. So I did an interview with Brian Full of Love. When I asked um, about how the financial fields understand the concept of ambiguity, he answered, quote, ambiguity is defined as something that we haven't yet figured out. We don't know enough about it or something about it is hard or difficult to measure. Even though this is the case, we still think the thing is, quote, black and whiteable. When I asked him whether it was meaningful that he chose those two terms to describe this, he answered no. Rather that he meant that the thing is knowable, but has the possibility to feel less clear. He went on to explain that in a field that is results driven, like his field, a no result result is worthless. When pressed, he agreed that his use of the term worthless suggests that ambiguity has a negative valence. In coming to consider ambiguity conceptually, and especially through the lens of Beauvoir, I have been most troubled by the way that she appears to situate ambiguity as that which resides between two oppositional poles. When I asked Full Love about this trouble and what mathematics might suggest about this, he responded that historical relevance can change the way we use categories. As such, when categories change, ambiguities themselves change. In other words, ambiguities can be reduced or increased. When taken from this view, there are many ways to consider ambiguity that don't confine it to binary opposition or to two terms only, or to two terms that are opposed. As examples, we might think of color wheels, which illustrate ambiguities not based on binary opposition. 
One might even consider here ways that gender, sexuality, and romantic preference show up on internet memes shaped as an erotic sphere rather than a spectrum. Anne Fausto Sterling considers gender through the lens of a Mobius strip, which can be categorized as a kind of ambiguous circle. As I gather these thoughts on ambiguity, I return to existential phenomenology to help me consider further dimensions of ambiguity. As Lewis Gordon writes, no human being is a subject alone, nor an object alone. It is even incorrect to say that a human being is both. A human being is a subject, is neither a subject nor an object, but instead, in the language of Simone de Beauvoir and Merleau-Ponty, ambiguous. This ambiguity is an expression of the human being as a meaningful, multifaceted way of being that may involve contradictory interpretations or at least equivocal ones. Such ambiguity stands out, not as a dilemma to be resolved as in the case of an equivocal sentence, but as a way of living to be described. The phenomenological task at hand is thus to draw out a hermeneutic of this ambiguity. In the Africana experience, this calls for a description of the ways in which human ambiguity is manifested or evaded. As is well known, the procedure usually taken when it comes to studying Blacks is that of evasion. The boredom with which my research assistant reported back about her research into ambiguity, and the more I think more closely about the term and the idea, the more I've tried to consider what it would mean to take a Black feminist approach to ambiguity, to its meanings and its dimensions. In so doing, I return to, um, sorry, in so doing, I return to consideration of its use. Beauvoir guides me in this as well, writing in the early part of Ethics that man makes the useless choice to inflict his coming to be upon himself. This is because for Beauvoir, there is no metaphysical or absolute value that founds this choice. Beauvoir then writes that the word useful, quote, can only be defined in the human world established by man's projects and the ends he sets up. In other words, what is useful is that which has value with regard to human projects. A Black feminist orientation toward use also recalls a commitment to use. Following Ahmed here, quote, I think again of Audre Lorde, who especially in her later work often spoke of her desire to be useful to others. She spoke even of her desire for her own death to be a useful death. She writes of how she thought about death, about how to die as well as how to live, rather than just fall into death, not going the same way others are going as things have gone before, requires asking questions. Usefulness here is about asking questions about how to do something, how to be something. She knows that you have no choice. Mortality is the condition of having to die. But mortality acquires a different meaning for those whose existence is not, not supported. We all have to die at least once. Making that death useful would be winning for me. I wasn't supposed to exist anyway, not in any meaningful way in this fucked up white boy's world. Usefulness might matter more for those who are not supposed to exist. Usefulness then becomes a political address, a way of facing outward toward others. Audre Lorde teaches us that we need to keep the question of use alive, not because it does not matter, but because it does. In her groundbreaking paper, How Is This Paper Philosophy, Christy Dodson, a Black feminist epistemologist, writes about how our culture of praxis might be more hospitable to diverse practitioners of philosophy. She sets up two criteria for a culture of praxis the discipline of philosophy might adopt, one based in Black feminist politics. One, value placed on seeking issues and circumstances pertinent to our living, where one maintains a healthy appreciation for the differing issues that will emerge as pertinent among different populations. 
And two, recognition and encouragement of multiple canons and multiple ways of understanding disciplinary validation, unquote. Drawing on the work of Lord, Dodson concludes that, quote, a culture of praxis within professional philosophy would present a great deal more livable options than it does currently, unquote. I have adopted an orientation of usefulness for thinking about ambiguity and trying to further explore the concept. I am thinking about ambiguity as tied to my own projects and the projects that I connect myself to. In this way, I can say that ambiguity was useful to me because it helped me navigate tensions, helped me rest in the idea that I will have to make decisions that are not clear, that are not given foundation by virtue of an ethical recipe. Here I share a list of ambiguities that I've mapped in thinking about my year 2020. As you read them, I invite you here again to add your own to the word cloud. Um, I want you to consider ambiguity, a word that has been uttered by almost all of the presenters at this conference so far, as I have done, as a concept that might have had more or less use to your life in 2020. I hope that in sharing our ambiguities at the end of this talk, we might pause for a moment to reflect upon the year that we have lived through together, to consider what these ambiguities tell us about the phenomenon of ambiguity itself. So I initially tried to categorize these as sort of personal, political, and ontological. And I think I felt the need to do so or to do this because I wanted to find some way to draw some connection or find some commonalities in the sorts of ambiguous ways I was experiencing myself. I also thought it, that it would be meaningful to distinguish between that which was personal and that which was squarely political. The more I think about this, the less I feel convinced, given my clear feminist commitments, that I need to reinforce such a separation between the personal and the political. I note the sort of arrows that go back and forth as the space between the terms on these lists, the tension between the two among the many, because I'm coming to better understand how these terms need not stand in binary opposition, I'm appreciative of the emphasis on the movement, the relationality between the terms. I picked this notation up from Lugones, who I also consider in my investigation of ambiguity, but not here today. In some, we might say that living inside these tensions typified 2020. This felt like more the case than ever before because the circumstances felt extraordinary. This was not a moment and continues not to be a moment for many for politics as usual, just like the time that spurred Beauvoir to this work, faced with political circumstances that are global and personal and uncertain. In continuing to think about the dimensions of ambiguity here with you and in the future as I continue writing, I also want to ask, what risks are there in overusing the concept? How do I make a clear distinction between ambiguity and dualism, between ambiguity and binary? Is difference already entrenched in binary opposition? Are hierarchies and terms inevitable when thinking with ambiguity? Is the lack of inextricability at the heart of ambiguity a strength of the concept, a weakness of the concept? Making note of ambiguity, having developed an appreciation for it, finding it in places became a challenge I used to get myself through 2020. Beauvoir and the ambiguity she initially helped me describe have deepened they feel as if they become more entrenched after that year. Learning how not to grasp for definitive political meaning was especially useful to my life as a Black feminist. I continue to consider and to question, what does it mean to entrench ambiguities? How can we think or embrace ambiguity? How can we imbue ourselves with ambiguity as Maria Lugona suggests? I'm encouraged by the other Black women thinking about ambiguity and its relationship to our lived experience. 
For example, Relina Joseph's analysis of how Black women use strategic ambiguity as a way of pushing back against discrimination through a coded resistance to post-racial ideologies. And Zakia Jackson, who writes about ambiguity in Becoming Human. Even though the ethics of ambiguity remains my favorite of all Beauvoir's texts, we know, and maybe someone has mentioned over this week, that Beauvoir would sort of go on to denounce the, the text, decrying the juvenility of some of her stances. And interestingly enough, when I'm thinking about Beauvoir's sort of notion of ambiguity, Maria Lagona's, you know, side by side, Maria Lagona's also sort of turns away from thinking about uh, ambiguity in ways in her early work. Um, it might be the case that one day I'll look back on this talk and be embarrassed by my own short-sightedness. Even though both um, Beauvoir and Lugones would both move away from their earlier orientations toward ambiguity, it was the framework. And this, this framework that I adopted from the ethics of ambiguity specifically was the framework that I needed for this very year. I am encouraged that ambiguity always already orients us toward failure and toward embracing our failure. I am reminded that much like Beauvoir, I am no longer feel as if I'm writing toward or for a world as usual. I believe in the possibilities of ambiguity to help others make sense of their experiences and for us to connect and form bonds of solidarity across our vast differences. I believe that amb ambiguity can be useful for others. I hope to show in further work, especially how it's useful for intersectional ambiguity and for other ambiguous thinkers and legacies I plan to have and will continue to engage like Angela Davis, Bell Hooks, Audre Lorde, Adrian Piper, Lorraine O'Grady, Kimberly Crenshaw. I was beginning to be embarrassed by Beauvoir, where she might have faltered, all the rightful criticism of her. But becoming older is becoming again attendant to and more tolerant of the ambiguities of others. I also understand more the feeling of not wanting to be a philosopher, as 2020 found me shifting into artistic practice through performance and visual art, having become formally exhausted with the philosopher's need for clarity for that which I have picked up from being trained as such. I became exhausted of navigating outsider within status, the shifting histories and exclusions within philosophy. These I also found myself feeling ambiguous towards. Am I a philosopher? Has this identification kept me from accessing something within myself? Politically, to live in the United States, in this country and many others like it, the grading ambiguity of participating in a political system that leads directly to and is founded upon the erasure and dehumanization of your people is, is just horrible to deal with. I've come to know that the only way to navigate this is to do so ambiguously. At the beginning of my sabbatical, which sort of formally started, I guess sort of, uh, I may formally start a couple of weeks ago, um, I went to the woods to try to get an answer to what I should be doing with my sabbatical. I was looking for answers and I did not get them, but I went hiking. And while I was hiking, I remember Beauvoir in the woods hiking. And I thought about what it means to be at the prime of life, to feel beholden to the force of circumstance. As I enter into second half of 2021, encouraged by all of you, and I'm thinking also about like all the cool work that's come out recently about Beauvoir, um, Kate Kirkpatrick's book, um, Meryl Altman's book. Um, I'm once again feeling reconnected to Beauvoir, both of us in our ambiguity. So I want to kind of stop the share now um, and see what has come up in our little word cloud. So I'll put in the chat at least to share that you all can see. So all of you should be able to go there and then I'm gonna to try to figure out kind of what comes up. So I see here, 
yeah so I mean that's the end of my talking I'm just I'm opening up space and I'm sure Dan is was tasked with responding to this talk <laughs> I'm very much looking forward to it uh, but I want to just sort of share pause and 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 have a moment for us to look at the ones that came up for us and to thank you all for participating in it and for thinking about the notion of collective there's something else I was thinking about in Jen's presentation about the sort of collective phenomenologies and these are our sort of collective phenomenology our collective ambigu ambiguous sort of phenomenology of the year and I wanted to thank you for like listening to me about this, but also for reflecting for yourselves about a year that we that we managed to survive and to come through and to be here all together, I think is is just something to pause and, and be grateful for. So on that note, I thank you all again for for having me speak and I look forward to being in conversation with you all about any of this um, and I look forward to hearing Dan's response now. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Crescent, for, well, a very rich, very nuanced and very engaging talk, but that doesn't sound quite enough, I want to say, in the non-trivial sense of the word touching talk as well, showing us how powerful and useful philosophy can be when we refrain from the futile ambition anyway to sort of keep keep our personal situation out of our philosophy and, and to deny the ambiguity from or the ambiguities from which we think and work. So thank you very much, Crescent, for this presentation. And uh, we have a brief uh, response, initial response uh, to Crescent's talk by Dan. Please, Dan van Kauenberge. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I have to say, uh, yeah, this is also overwhelming, actually. I, I already had the privilege to read the paper before today, but it's, it's such a lovely paper and it was such an amazing presentation. So I just want to thank Crescent and also all of the other speakers uh, before because all of these presentations were just so insightful and interesting. And it was already mentioned and I'm still a student I'm actually in the middle of my last accent period. So this has been a very fun, very interesting uh, break from my exams. But in, in the, because uh, we're trying to, to have an embodied perspective of, of philosophy, I want to share with you the fact that I feel somewhat stressed and uh, somewhat not ready to respond to something like this. So, Actually, I, I wanted to start by telling, by, by actually focusing on, on ambiguity, I think, that's present in, in my own work or the way that I've been reading the Beauvoir in some way, because uh, Crescent has been mentioning the fact that, that philosophy still is, uh, as, as it has been for a very long time, a, a white male discipline in which there isn't that much space for, for political activism for embodiment, for, for subjectivity in some way. And that's something that I've been struggling with myself because like Crescent, and that's, that's a very nice coincidence, I think, I fell in love with the Beauvais work through reading The Ethics of Ambiguity while researching an ethics paper. And I thought that she had a very interesting way of looking at, at ethics at, as something that's fundamentally ambiguous and uh, as, as a critique of all of these approaches that I've been learning that, that all seem to find a, a formalistic or almost a, a calculator 
to come up with answer to, to ethical questions. But then again, I, I read those, those very interesting conclusions. She came, she came up with those very interesting criticisms. But at the end of the day, I was still writing those very formalistic papers and I was still trying to place the Beauvoir into this very uh, universalistic approach at, at philosophy. And so Crescent's paper and her, her talk today to me has been somewhat of a challenge because she, she has uh, pointed out to me that I myself am very guilty of the things that I find interesting that Simone de Beauvoir has been criticizing for like 100 years by now. Um, so at first I didn't really know how to respond. So I had a very brief conversation with Crescent and we, we decided that it would be best for me to, to talk about the ambiguities that have plagued my 2020. And I, I, I thought about it a lot. And I think there, there's this one passage in the, the Ethics of Ambiguity by the end of it, in which she's trying to, to well, basically she's, she's summarizing all of these ethical and political approaches and all of these different ways of trying to give a structure to our political action. And every time it, it becomes ambiguous, it becomes paradoxical, trying to uh, fight for freedom because be, uh, means that you have to take away the freedom of others and all of these paradoxes. And as I've already said, I, I always thought it was a very interesting theoretical concept, but I never really thought about applying that to my own life. But, but this year has been, has been a, a year of making a lot of ethical choices and a lot of choices about how to use my body, actually. My body not as this neutral tool, as I've been thought as a European, young, white, straight male, as this, this thing that I just use in day-to-day -day life, but as a thing that has a, a societal, a medical function that I have to use in this way, that I have to, to place into this pandemic. And I, I, I had to, to make a lot of choices just, and I think that it's interesting that a lot of the political debate about the pandemic has been about rules, about laws, about trying to find very strict borders of where to wear a mask, where not to wear a mask, where how many people can I meet, to what hour can I meet them? But to me, those, 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 the, the hardest and maybe the most ethical moments have been those in which I've been that in which I had to take a break, in which I had to really think about what I was doing and really question the way I was using my body. Um, for instance, my so I've, I will also try to, to be a bit more autobiographical than I'm used to, but I feel a bit uncomfortable with it, but I will try to. So for instance, my grandmother has uh, lung cancer and she's been diagnosed one month before the pandemic, which has been very stressful to our family, but also very difficult to navigate as an ethical question because this could be her last months but I could also be giving her COVID by going to her so it's this very difficult ambiguity of seeing her but that it's also better not to see her and then again there's also politics because COVID very much had hasn't been a break from politics to nobody and there's this very harsh ambiguity between needing to take space, not, not meeting others, but this very urgent need to protest. And then again, if you go to a protest in Belgium, there's always this ambiguity of we're here and we're, we're fighting for 
we're fighting against the situation in Israel and Palestine, or we are protesting with the people in the United States from Black Lives Matter. But then again, we're Belgium. So what are we going to do, you know? Like we're, we're protesting, but who's listening? So there's all of these ambiguities, I think, that have been plaguing my year. But then I was thinking about all of these things, and I'll, I'll try to, to round things up because, again, I, I feel like other people will have more novel and more interesting things to say. But I thought about all of these things, but then there's still this, this feeling of being very uncomfortable, actually, because, first of all, I'm a student. I'm still learning, and it, it always feels weird as a student, I think, having to to come up with something that's very concrete, which again is against the, the whole idea of philosophy being ambiguous. So writing down my thoughts was a, a weird, I think, project. Uh, and, and again, I, I think that what, what the last couple of days have taught me the most, I think, is that Simone Beauvoir is not simply a body of work, but that she's a method, that she's a way of doing philosophy, that it's actually an act of, of, of approaching philosophy and that I should try to, to write more embodied, but my embodiment is one of a, again, a young, straight, white European male. And maybe what is very emancipatory and very revolutionary for, for other social groups to do, feels way less emancipatory to do as, as somebody in my social status, because I'm very aware that what I'm saying that's a white man complaining about having to wear a mask and having to think about his body as something that is has a has a place in society actually isn't that novel and actually already predominates uh, societal debates. So I want to end my, my very brief response by again thanking Crescent and maybe questioning my own response by by again questioning what, what an embodiment of a social group that is already that present in society would actually mean. So uh, thank all of you. Thank you very much, Dan, for your thoughts, your reflections, but also for sharing your own ambiguities. Thank you very much. And the uh, floor is now open just uh, for, for an open discussion. Sarah, please um, go ahead and start. Thank you. Hi, hi everyone. And thank you very much, Crescent, for this beautiful talk. And thank you, Dan, also for your comments and reflections. Uh, I feel very identified with you both and maybe the, the ambiguity that I wanted to maybe to share and to ask about and, and Crescent, and to, yeah, to ask you also what do you think and how, how, how would you um, make Beauvoir uh, speak uh, uh, about this uh, is something also I think that was very present in 2020 and in my personal experience as well. This ambiguity between doing and not doing, doing and or or, or being productive and not being productive, and I think most of us uh, felt very um, at at times um, very uh, guilty of maybe not doing what we needed to do, what we were supposed to do in terms of productivity, for example, academic productivity or other. And for me, this year was also a year, I mean, I, I think now about what Dan told about uh, his grandmother. For me, this year was a year when my 
brother suddenly became dementia and with a very sudden dementia and also became like a from being a very active able person uh, to be a disabled person and i was thinking about this um, the concept of use uh, it, it sounded and, and the, the audrey lord's uh, quote um, it sounded to me it's, I, 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 maybe I'm wrong, but a, a little bit ableist, like you know, choosing your death or doing or using things to decide or something like that. And and I I mean I will end by just saying that this has been for me also a very strong dilemma with Beauvoir, and I've also worked about this uh, a bit, but uh, about um, her insistence also on the project and on being active. And in that sense, I think she's very, she, she's, she's behaving a little bit like, like her peers, male philosophers, in that sense, giving too much maybe importance to this thing of the project, or, or at least that's what I felt and that's what sometimes bothered me. But at the same time, she has this incredible description of the erotic body and this phenomenology of the erotic, which for me is a place of, you know, of being, of just being, not doing, right? And, and I mean, I had dealt with this also regarding motherhood, speaking about motherhood, no, like a place where you can reach transcendence in these ambiguities of, for example, being passive or being, being in an erotic state which is not like a productive, you know, normal intellectual sense or something like that. So, yes, I mean, it interests me. What what do you have to say about about this this kind of ambiguities? And and thank you very much for this for this talk. And thank you, thank you so much. Um, in, among the people to shout out who I met at the initial Simone de Beauvoir, members of the International Simone de Beauvoir Society, which of which you all should be. <laughs> Okay, so um, yes, I appreciate this. Let me sort of respond um, as I'm sort of thinking. So I appreciate thinking about the ableism in the concept of use. And that quote that comes from Audre Lorde actually, interestingly enough, comes from the cancer journals. And so the cancer journals is where, I mean, you know, people who teach at, in, in disability studies sometimes refer to the cancer journals as being sort of a kind of foundation for thinking through ability literature and disability literature. So it's interesting. And there is a very, very heavy emphasis on use use in the cancer journals there for her. It, it, it's, throughout, it's throughout it. So it's interesting to me kind of as a critique, just to think about this as, you know, Lord as a figure, as a figure in disability studies, also sort of taking up or not or taking up the sort of ableist language, I would have to think about this some more. So I really appreciate this, but it does make me definitely think about Simone de Beauvoir and how she does not lean, how she, you know, in the tension between sort of activity and passivity, does not lean into ambiguity there, right? It, it's very much about transcendence, very much about projects. And, and, and so I also appreciate that sort of casting of her. And we'll have to consider this some more. Throughout the pandemic, I did think about I mean, I've always tried to figure out about projects. So initially when I uh, read the ethics of ambiguity, I was like, oh, can love be a project? That was my initial sort of dissertation question. Can love be a project? Can the Iraq be a project? You know, is that a sort of Bavarian project? And I sort of came to the conclusion, no, but there, there, 
as I have started to think more about widening Beauvoir or, 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 or having her sort of cross-pollinate with other sort of genres and disciplines and, and, and areas of conversation, I've been thinking maybe her understanding of project, if we lean more into the ambiguity of the project. So for instance, during this year, one of the sort of ambiguities I pulled out that was very present for me was exactly about productivity. And even in terms of like rest and resistance was a big tension in particularly in the black feminist community online like it, rest is resistance was thing that people were saying and it's like how do we understand resting as a political sort of project or how do we but we can and we might right so how are there ways that we can even reorient ourselves to the understanding of the project as being something that must be leaning toward one pole of ambiguity as opposed to the other and so thinking about rest as a project thinking about countering productivity about 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 you know not leaning in as a kind of project as a sort of useful I mean maybe there are ways that we consider we can reconsider the notion of project also you made me think of and I now can't remember sort of why but there's this beautiful oh in terms of resting there's this beautiful passage that I always love to get to in the ethics of ambiguity where she talks about the human being as not when you go out and you look into the sunset and, and you don't want to, to be the sunset, you want to be the thing that reveals, you know, the sunset. And there's a certain way in which I see that as a kind of restful sort of ambiguity there, a moment where she's thinking something more along the lines of maybe what you're talking about. I also wanted to just say as a, another shout out for Simone de Beauvoir, uh, the Simone de Beauvoir Society and also the journal, Simone de Beauvoir Studies Journal. Somebody needs to pull together a, an issue on motherhood because it has really come up so very often in this conference and, and for thinking about new directions in Simone de Beauvoir Studies. I mean, obviously this is very hot. So I'm, I'm, so I'm, I'm interested, I'm interested in where that, can go and, and, and all of the sort of rich conversations we've been having about that um, throughout this conference. Thank you, Crescent. We have, um, I think, uh, three immediate questions and only five minutes left, but I think we can take five minutes more. We also started a couple minutes late. I would suggest that maybe we take those three questions, if you don't mind, Crescent. It's, I know it's exhausting to take them in a, in a bunch but then we can hear them all and then we can close with um, Sonia's comments. Sonia is just saying she has a comment and maybe we can close with that if that's okay. Yeah, that'd be um, so Haley, please, the first question. Yes, thank you. And also thank you for a very, very good uh, presentation. Um, you mentioned the concept of tension. Um, I'm just reading out the question out loud here, uh, sorry. <laughs> but yeah, you mentioned the concept of, of tension. And I've been uh, thinking about this kind of concept of tension also in regards to ambiguity in my own thesis. And this reminded me also of the feminist psychoanalyst, uh, Jessica Benjamin, who is describing that uh, and talking about the kind of constructed gender dualism between like, for example, autonomy and dependence, which also came up a lot as an um, kind of ambivalent or ambiguous concept in the poll um, we just did together right now. And uh, Benjamin uh, suggests that kind of the way out of this kind of dualistic structure would be keeping up this tension, which results from these different forces. And I think that's quite an interesting idea. And I'm my, myself now asking kind of what do you what can one do with this tension? Because uh, she would it would be suggest suggesting that you should not kind of try to escape this 
tension and you also mentioned it briefly. So I, I would be very interested in he hearing what you think about this notion as a kind of critical and subversive term also and its political relevance perhaps. Thank you. Thank you, Haley. And the next question comes from Dana. Dana, please. Great, I'll try to make it super brief. The upshot is, you know, to invite you to talk more about the use of amb So first of all, Crescent, this is amazing. I'm so excited to keep talking about it. Um, but I'm curious about, you're thinking about the use of ambiguity going forward, continuing with regard to fascism, right? And it's continued to be, it's prevalent in our society still. It hasn't gone away with the election and, you know, and the questions about state counterviolence. And I'll, I'll say that I'm asking this as I'm seated in rural Ohio, where I pass neighbors and say hello to them regularly, who have Trump signs still up, who have a chief Wahoo thing on their front lawn, right? Which is the, the for those who don't know, the racist mascot for the Cleveland Indians that is people still are holding on to in some kind of political way. And so, yeah, that's my question, basically. But like thinking about the use of ambiguity in terms of the continued prevalence of, of fascism and the creeping fascism that's going on in, in the United States and of course elsewhere, but perhaps for us specific to the US context. Thank you. And the next question comes from Ashika. I just wanna say thank you so much, Crescent, um, your presentation touched me so, so, so much, especially considering I'm at the end of my PhD and I'm also going through the same sort of um, thoughts at the moment about also how do you ambiguously put yourself out into the world to some degree and be a part of that world such that your ambiguity also touches and affects others' ambiguities as well. Um, and I think Hopefully as well, I can be quite inspired by your by the beginning of your presentation and sort of mention as well in the Belgian context, the racism that exists here too. Even during the COVID pandemic, there was the death um, of a young man called Adol who was uh, basically mowed down by the police. And to continue today, there's uh, justice pour Adol as well. And so few people know about these events and even just the year prior, the same, both these boys were just under 20 years old um, with Merdi Bouda as well, who again was knocked down by a police van. And it just sort of, my question really resonates with Dana's because I always think the counter-violence that we need is actually totally unambiguous in these relations. And I think this is what Dana Miranda was saying yesterday as well, because when we have those acts which say, whether it's stop, no, or um, a kind of fight back, there is no ambiguity in that. And, and to me, I also would cry out, there shouldn't be ambiguity about that. And maybe that's also my misunderstanding of ambiguity in that moment. However, I, I still appreciate and would want to pursue uh, Simone de Beauvoir's ethics in this. Um, and I think for me that again, it's because your presentation resonated so strongly with me. Um, and thank you really so much. Thank you. Present. That's a, that's a lot to take on, but please. <laughs> All right, I'll see what I'll see what I can do. 
So first of all, thank you all for your questions and for your engagement and, and for sharing more stories. I mean, I think, yes. I mean, in, in terms of thinking of the uses of ambiguity, the ways of, of, of making use of it. I, I do think that these sort of sharings, I, I, I am very convinced about this, 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 this sharing, this close attention, these, these sort of ontologies that we've been talking about, about specificity, about difference. So I think it's so important that we gather in places like this where we can share you know, these moments of police violence, et cetera, across the globe. Um, also the fact that the internet allows us to do that is really um, you know, an honor. Um, or at least it's something that we can use and take up to think about how we share. So in terms of thinking about, so the questions I'm sort of mapping are kind of what does it mean to kind of keep up the tension? And especially how do we relate ambiguously? What does it mean to relate ambiguously to political circumstances that appear unambiguous? And I think sort of, I will sort of answer that first. I think, I mean, one of the things that I loved about as soon as we turned to, to online, I, I, as soon as we turned online, I was like, this semester is shit. I, I, I was teaching two classes. I was teaching a, a, a feminist political philosophy class, and I was teaching a representing difference in philosophy class. And I just said, cut it. I don't care what we're doing. We're, we're going back to the ethics of ambiguity. I don't know what to do. I'm like, I don't know what to do. So I just had both of my classes read the ethics of ambiguity. And I just... Right. And I was amazed by how the students responded, by how, by how well they responded to the ethics of ambiguity in that moment, because they were in recognition of the fact that we are in uncertain circles. We, we have no, we are unmoored. We have, we have no sense. We feel like we're sort of flung out here in the world in, in terms of what is happening there. And as we read the ethics of ambiguity together, um, when we got to the final section, I mean, the thing that I love about the ethics of ambiguity is that I believe she makes a very good case that, you know, it is through ambiguity that we come to be able to recognize those political circumstances that deserve sort of counter violences, right? And so it, it is through kind of understanding and embracing the ambiguities in ourselves, both sort of ontologically and situationally, that we come to, that our desire to embrace or imbue ourselves with ambiguity is that which allows us to evaluate sort of moral or ethical positions, right? So towards the end, she's very clear, you know, those situations that cut off the freedom of others, those situations that keep others from being able to imbue themselves with their own ambiguities, that keep us from being able to, to live within our ambiguities, those are situations that we must cut off. Those are situations that we must resist, that we must revolt against, right? So I think Beauvoir for me is, is in the ethics of ambiguity, I think there is very clearly sort of, she's very clear about where we can say, no, that is not uh, according to the ethics of ambiguity. This is according to sort of some sort of ethic of, of sort of increasing freedom, right? So I, I, so I don't wanna suggest that the, that our, I want to suggest that one thing I appreciate from Beauvoir is the notion that there are no recipes, right? So you can take on with her a, a sort of appreciation for, or um, a suggestion that we, I'm sort of suggesting that we imbue ourselves more with ambiguity, with the tensions. And we can also want that for others. So to want that for oneself and to want that for others is one and the same thing she's wanting to say, right? So I think there, though it's not formulaic, what I appreciate from her is she says, you can have a stance towards this, but you can figure out within your own situation how you're going to operate, knowing that you're always 
going to fail. I mean, that's one of the other things that I really appreciate there, just, just taking up a failure. So in, in sort of returning to the first question, what does it mean to keep up the tensions? I think that's one thing that I, embracing failure, what does it mean to embrace failure, right? What, 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 what does it mean to, um, again, not, not be the sunset, but be the, the thing, the being that reveals the sunset. I think that there are moments that we can access these tensions and moments that we live in these tensions. Um, and I am trying to make the case in terms of intersectionality, that there are some people's identities in which sort of ontologically they're situated within those tensions sort of anyway, right? And so, so feeling politically intention is part of my identity as a black woman, as a black feminist, it's just something that I live with. And so to, to see that not as something to be resolved, but rather as something to sort of be leaned into, to be described, to be fleshed out, I think is the way that, that, that I would say, how do we live within the tensions to, to, to try to hold them, to try to, to try to understand sort of what it means to live them and think through them, you know, embody them, et cetera. Okay, we have uh, one more comment by Sonia before we um, take a short break. Sonia, please. In fact, my, my, my comment was formulated before the, the discussion that I think took off from Dana's comment and then Ashika's about maybe there are times you have to be unambiguous, right? Um, and I was thinking um, of a little passage and I've actually managed to find it in force of circumstance that I, I will read you because it's after she's written um, right-wing thought today and um, her critique of Merleau-Ponty, which is very, very vitriolic, right? Um, and she writes in Force of Circumstance, um, people often say, I take too peremptory a tone in my essays and that a more temperate approach would be more convincing. I don't think so. The best way to explode a bag of hot air is not to pat it, but to dig one's nails into it. And I, I think this is the moment where she's saying, get off the pot, you know, you can't, you know, you, you're aware of everything that's complicated, ambiguous, but there's a moment um, when you just have to say what you're going to say or do what you're going to do. Um, and she actually, it's a little strange, she goes on to juxtapose what she calls her essays with her novels and to say the essays reflect practical choices and intellectual certitudes, which is not quite what she's doing in the ethics of ambiguity, but she's talking, I think, about those later essays, right? Um, my novels, the astonishment in which I'm thrown by the whole and by the details of our human condition. Okay, so she's, I think, got a very strong sense there of a sort of realm for exploring ambiguity and a point where you actually have to just move. Okay, and I think that's an interesting passage. So that's all I wanted to say. Thank you, Sonia. Would you like to quickly um, respond, Crescent, before we break? Mm. Yeah, I guess I would just like to, to thank Sonia for, for locating. I was thinking about the force of circumstance because I'm always so, when I teach the ethics of ambiguity, I'm always having to say, ah, you know, in the end, this is not, this is not one of her favorites of, 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 of hers. And I'm, so, so again, am I trying to think about, ah, why is it the case? And it might be the case that, that um, yes, it might be the case that this is a moment of pause for inaction, or it seems like it discourages action, but, I, yeah, I don't know. I'll have to pause it and sort of like think about this because for me, the allure of ambiguity 
was in the tension between action and inaction, right? And I think maybe she is not giving herself enough credit even in that moment for, for, for what, what she sort of reveals to us through the concept of ambiguity, that it does allow for us, that it doesn't call for us to just, to just reveal, but to act in sort of that revelation. So um, anyway, thank you. And thank you all. Um, I'm looking forward to toolkitting with you all now. Thank you for listening to this episode. We hope that you enjoyed it as much as we did. Information about relevant literature mentioned in the episode can be found on the description of this podcast. Stay tuned and we hope to see you back soon.